Welcome to another episode of Love with Elise Peck. I'm your host, Elise Peck. I'm a best-selling author, certified mindset coach, psychology student, former lawyer, wife, and mother to two primary school-aged girls. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Shanetta Williams. So Shanetta is an OBGYN by training, and she left the clinical medicine field to transition to public health in 2014, um, and she still works with women um, in a gynecological capacity. Um, she's also been married for nine years and has two small children um, that are four years and 18 months old. And we're going to dive into her responsive mothering journey. So welcome, Shanesha. Well, thank you so much for having me, Elise. This is great. Thank you. Um, and did I get the details right there? Did I say the intro? <laughs> Perfect. Oh, awesome. Great. Yeah. Good to know. So I would love to start off with um, asking you if you could give your pre-motherhood self any advice about motherhood, what would that be? Great question. So um, I would say I would tell myself to trust myself a bit more. Um, you know, you might hear sort of my intro and say, oh, she's an OBGYN. She deals with babies and, um, and you know, I, I love taking care of women. That's why I went into that field, but I, we hand off the babies, right? <laughs> like we hand so I felt really just, yeah, I, I didn't trust myself at all. Like I had a lot of anxiety about taking care of a newborn. Um, my daughter, um, just from some prior surgery I had, I had to have a cesarean at 37 weeks. So I had, my daughter was full term, but she was barely full term when she, at delivery. And she had a little bit of a NICU stay. So it was just a lot for me. Um, and so there was just a lot of anxiety um, about having a newborn. And I, I just feel like I second guessed myself so much. I didn't trust my maternal instincts. And looking back on that, I'm like, you totally knew what to do. You knew how to take care of her. Um, but you know, I guess that's just part of the process. Mm, yeah, I love that. I've, I've got this interesting curiosity around NICU just because I don't know if I'm fully finished creating my family yet. And part of me is like, has a little bit of fear of, of that ever happening if I have another baby, because the minute I have my babies, I like to keep them really close. Um, I don't like them to be out of my sight. And I just wonder, is there anything you feel that people need to know about NICU stays? Um, like, you know, I guess anything that you would have wanted to know beforehand or anything you think is helpful for people to know about the process? Yeah, that's, I'm glad you asked that. I didn't even think about that before this call, but, you know, my first delivery uh, with my daughter was quite, I would say, it's quite traumatic, not so much the actual delivery. I had a planned cesarean, like I said, I had prior surgery. So that was all planned. I was not prepared for her to go into the NICU. Um, and my husband and I, we had this whole plan. We're not letting her out of our sight. And here we are, I'm sitting in the post-op area and I have, I saw my daughter for a few you know, seconds. I'm still on the operating table. Uh, I had my I had my surgery around 10 in the morning. I did not see my daughter again physically until about eight o'clock that night. Like that. And so I was sitting in the post-op area. My husband is, you know, in the nursery with my daughter. She's having some issues. And I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea. And honestly, um, I had taken some lactation courses. And so 
I sat there and I started self-expressing like hand expressing breast <laughs> like because I was like I need to do something that's and I sat there and did that and unfortunately the hospital I was at I, I was one of those women who I had colostrum you know we all have colostrum but I was able to hand express it right away and I asked my nurse for something to collect it in and she's like oh no we don't do that here and I was just like oh my gosh so um I think it would be helpful. I mean, the second time around, I felt more prepared. Um, I came and I had little tubes to collect colostrum <laughs> because I was just like, the baby's getting this <laughs> one way or another. Um, so just, it might be good to ask those questions, you know, especially if you're in a situation like I was, we were going in for an operative procedure. Um, you know, like what are the policies about breastfeeding, collecting breast milk in the and while you're waiting? How do you get that to the baby? Because I was really just, I could not believe that here I am. You know, some women would love to be in a situation producing colostrum for their babies, and I am not even allowed to give it to her. So, um, mm. yeah, that was pretty traumatic for me. So, yeah. maybe thinking about um, preparing for that. You know. It's such good advice. It's such good advice. Um, yes, because that that colostrum is so important. Uh, I will say, so I'm in Australia, and the hospital here. My after my first was born, she hadn't latched on. I was really wanting for her to do the breast crawl. I wasn't. I which is like where you put them on your belly and they come up. But she sort of wasn't doing that. Um, it might have been because I hemorrhaged, and so they were pummeling my uterus, and I'm holding on to her, and it might have disrupted things. Um, but she wasn't doing it. And I remember they came in and they said, look, we're really going to have to get her colostrum in. So why don't you, you can express it into a spoon or anything. So that, that they were, um, where I was in Australia, aware of the colostrum thing, but that is so, so important to know that maybe not all hospitals or midwives know that. And so to bring in tubes because, um, yeah. And, I, and the other thing about that is, um, your body is expecting, to have something latch on pretty soon. Um, I've heard that it can be a risk for postnatal depression to be separated from your baby too much too soon because your body can think something has, you know, you've lost the baby if it's too long. So did you, like, I don't know, do a lot of skin on skin afterwards or any, like, were you all right once you got that chance to bond? So, yeah, you know, when she was finally stabilized and brought back into my, you know, recovery room, we were able to bond. But unfortunately, you know, it was just, it was a really great, my daughter stopped breathing uh, maybe an hour into that. And literally the nurse had to, my husband was holding her at the time. The nurse had to grab her out of his hands and run down the hall because it was just, I mean, I look, you know, like, like I said, I hadn't seen my daughter since delivery. And the one hour I had with her, you know, I kind of got a sense of what she looked like. I looked, I remember looking at my husband holding her and being like, that is just, I mean, she turned completely gray. I mean, it was just, um, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, before I could even get the words out, I'm, I'm very thankful to the nurse who noticed it even before I could speak the words, she grabbed her and ran. I mean, so, um, and then she never came back to my, uh, she stayed in the NICU for the rest of this day. So I had to keep going to the NICU to see her. So we had limited, uh, you know, I do feel like that I missed out on that. Um, and in fact, my daughter didn't latch until she was about six weeks old. And I really feel like 
that separation, the beginning of her life, that that largely impacted that, you know. So yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. What a, you're both warriors. <laughs> um, that sounds, yeah, it sounds scary. So then she did latch at six weeks. Like, was there a bit of a journey to making that happen? Absolutely. Um you know, it's when I think about it, I'm like, how did I even, because I feel like most people would have given up, you know, um, it, it was a journey, you know, I would, like I said, I was discharged from the hospital, my daughter was still in the hospital, so I would wake up, we'd wake up at like five in the morning and try to get there for her first feed, but if we were like a few minutes late, they would say, oh, she was crying, and they, I'd go in and she'd have a bottle, and I'm like, here I am, I'm producing all of this milk, please, you know, so it was, that was challenging, so we, she actually never latched in the hospital, and I ended up having a few lactation uh, consults, and uh, we went through so many things, you know, the nipple shields, uh, uh, supplemental nursing system, I'm talking about milk is flying everywhere, but in her mouth, <laughs> my husband is squeezing, I mean, <laughs> He's a trooper too. Like he was there massaging the breast, like getting the, it was a lot. It was a lot. In fact, there were some days where I'm like, okay, like, like when she turned a month old and she still wasn't latching, I'm like, okay, maybe this is just not for me. And I should say I was um, pumping. I was like exclusively breast pumping. So she still was getting the milk, but I, you know, I always just wanted to have that nursing experience. So I kept trying. And honestly, I didn't even try, you know, my lactation consultant was like, you know, try to latch her before every feed. And I didn't. I mean, sometimes depending on the day, I may have tried once, but at around six weeks, I don't know, something clicked. I put her on. We did a weighted feed. I could not believe she took in three ounces and one. I was just like, and we were off from there. Like it just, I, I just think she needed more time. Like I said, she was, and you know, she's term, but she was early term. I think she needed some time to kind of get all that coordination going. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a journey. And I feel like, um, you know, when I talk to family about it, it's like, you know, it's fine. You can stop, you know, but for me, I just, I don't know, something inside just said to keep going. That's so incredible. And, you know, and then you went right through to until you got pregnant with your son. So you went to two years, three months. Um, what a victory. Like, that's incredible. Like a story of persistence. And um, yeah, I just, I don't know, I just feel so happy for you because I, I personally, my goal was always, I just, I just, whatever happens, I just want to give them a two years of breastfeeding. Um so for me, like that would be so exciting to have such a rough start, but then to actually achieve that, that outcome. Um, yeah. Like, do you just think, oh my gosh, I can't believe it happened. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, it's still just really surprising to me. And funny enough, you know, my son, similar situation, he's born at 37 weeks, a little bit closer to 38 weeks, but he did not latch for the first six weeks either. <laughs> so. <gasps> So here we are again, I'm doing it again. So, um, and he, you know, we're at 18, well, he's 19, almost 19 months now and we're still going. So yeah, I mean, definitely going through all of that with my daughter, my first child definitely gave me the confidence to know that, okay, even if it looks like it might not happen now, doesn't mean it won't happen later. So that was an extra push, but with my daughter, I didn't have that benefit of experience to know that this would ever work, <laughs> would ever work, yeah. yeah. Oh, this is such an important story for anyone that's baby doesn't latch um, right away. 
Uh, do you do you feel like you know there's any reason why your son didn't latch in the first six weeks or it just was what happened? I, I mean, again, I think, you know, a 37-weeker may not be quite ready to come out. You know, I think, like, if I was allowed to deliver, I would, you know, I had no contractions. I went in there, like, I, you know, I was nowhere near labor. You know, my body was not ready necessarily. My, I don't think my kids were ready to come out, but because of the other risks because of my prior surgery, I had to deliver. So, you know, with my son, you know, after the experience with my daughter, you know, my doctor worked with me. So we went up until 37 and six. I'm like, deliver me right before 38. I don't want another Nikki baby, you know? Um, so fortunately he was not, you know, he did not go to the NICU, but yeah, I just think it takes some babies a little bit longer. Um, and we just have to be patient. Mm. Oh, I love that persistence and patience and trusting yourself. I think they're like lessons that life is trying to teach us in any category. Um, it's such a universal lesson. Um, I, I would love to know when you decided that you were going to be a responsive parent, like when you decided that when your baby was crying, it was communication and that you wanted to, to respond to that. When, when did you decide that? You know, I never, I don't think I've made like a conscious decision <laughs> to do this. I'm just doing what feels natural to me. Um, you know, and I, not that I can put myself in the mind of an infant, but I'm like, you have been living inside of my body <laughs> for all of this time. You are ripped out. You don't know, you know, I'm just like, I am home for that child when they cry, you know, and, and some people may disagree, you know, because especially now when I'm breastfeeding an 18 month old, oh, he's not hungry. And I'm like, well, maybe he's not, but maybe he just wants some comfort. And what is the problem with that? You know? Um, so yeah, I just, I'm just doing what comes natural to me. You know, I think particularly in my culture, you know, breastfeeding for this long, co-sleeping, it's not um, so accepted. You know, I have lots of family who would say, who even today are like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, what are you doing? But like I said, I'm doing what feels right to me. Um, when I look, you know, when my son knows that he's about to nurse, the joy, the look of his face, I mean, that's enough to keep me going. Like, I, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's always been that way for me. When they cry, I respond. Even now, you know, they cry, I respond. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I feel like we are here as guides for our children. And what better way to establish a stable foundation for them to grow, to take risks, to leap, than to be that, that, that source of stability for them. And that's what I'm doing, so. Mm, I love that. It's like this beautiful maternal instinct and you're listening to it. And I think um, it's a real shame. You know, I've researched a lot into the, like the history of baby sleep and baby care and all this sort of stuff. And really a lot of us get so much pressure to ignore that instinct and do it a certain way. And from what I understand and from what I've researched, it's really due to three men that came out in the 19th century with new ways of parenting um, that were never proven, that would have nothing to do with evolution or biology um, or anthropology. And it just all to do with like efficiency or like, it was almost like uh, setting a program for a robot rather than a biological baby. And I think um, it's such a shame that so many women get the pressure to not listen to their internal instinct, which is correct. Uh, because of this noise that 
these so-called experts um, put out, which is just, it's taken over and it's just circulating and it's so widespread. You know, people everywhere are saying, oh, baby is self-settling. You've got to teach them to self-settle. They've got to self-settle. And like one guy called Anders called ba a baby that went to sleep without assistance self-settled. But, but that was just the term he gave it. And there was never any proof that a baby crying is settling themselves. If anything, there's only proof that they're very stressed. But the amount of people that claim a baby screaming is self-settling um, when there's no evidence for that statement, but there was just this widespread movement of that message is quite astounding. So I always find it so uh, hopeful when I hear a woman saying, I got the pressure, but I listened to myself anyway. Um, because, you know, there is a lot of evidence now coming through to support the maternal instinct to say, you know what, natural weaning is actually between the ages of two and seven in humans based on other species and our teeth and anthropology. Da, 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 da. Um, and so it's weird actually that we have people that are saying at 18 months, what are you doing? Like that, it's actually the reverse is weird that we have so many people that are, are saying against biology, um, but it really is requiring women to be so strong in their instinct to overcome this incorrect external noise. And I wonder, you know, have you always been someone that can ignore this external noise? Like, or is there some tips or whatever you have on, on, on how you tap into that inner voice and you do get through the external pressure? Because some women can't get through that external pressure. Some do succumb. And I just wonder if you've got any insights on how to not succumb. <laughs> how to trust yourself. You know, I can't say that I've been someone who's always been able to ignore the the noise, but I think something just turned on with my children. I mean, I you only get to do this once, you know. Um, I, I personally, the sound of my children crying, it, it just something inside is like you need to <laughs> you need to act, um, particularly when they're like so you know as a newborn or infant. I I, I cannot ignore that. I I cannot. I I have you know I of course we all have family and friends who've done you know um, letting letting their children self settle. I'm not able to do it. <laughs> I I just cannot. So um, and it I was listening to one of your other podcast episodes and. Um, you were talking to someone about like, you know, when you first come home from the hospital and you get, you know, someone wants to come and help you and they want to take the baby from you so that you can rest. And it reminded me of my own situation. My, I had an aunt who came to stay with me and I, you know, I definitely appreciate her help. She's a lot of help, but it was during those first few weeks, I was still trying to get my son to latch. So he really did need to be with me you know, and she was like, let me take him for the night. And I just felt so much anxiety. I could not place it, but just the love. And so I heard your podcast and I'm like, that's what it was. Like, I didn't need help with the baby. So I needed help with everything. else, And I didn't have the words to even express that. But yeah, um, I could hear my son crying in the other room, but it was just like, I got, you know, and it was just so much anxiety. So I've just never been the type of person that can just hear my child cry and not act I just I just can't that's just not in my nature I guess yeah. I think that's um such an, an interesting point you've raised which I think reminds me of the whole of early motherhood is 
you have all these experiences and you're so in it, you can't put words to it at the time. Things just do or don't feel right. And then later when you're when when my kids are now at primary school age and they're older, I can look back and process and give words to it now and be like, that's why I felt this way. That's and I think that's why the advice of following an instinct is so important because you'll be in the fog of early motherhood, you'll be on the treadmill of trying to figure it out, you'll be overwhelmed. You probably won't be able to access all that higher cognitive thinking to even understand why you feel that way. Um, but later on, when you look back, you'll be able to make sense of it and give words to it later on. But when you're in it, you can't, which is why it's so important to just trust the feelings because that's all, all you've got is trust right. it, make sense of it later. Even if it seems irrational, like just go with it because, um, you know, women's intuition and a mother's intuition is is so powerful uh, and we can't ask of ourselves to be able to rationalize and make sense of it in the moment. Like we will be at some point in future, but I think, um, yeah, you just saying that, like, that's what I felt, but I couldn't give words to it. That was exactly the same. I was just there like frozen, like freezing, like, I don't even know what to say to this person. I don't want to be my baby. And then I'm questioning myself. Am I selfish? Am I bad? Am, am I the person? Am I not supported? Cause I won't let myself. Is it all my fault? I had all of that, but now I can look back and be like, Gosh, no, like that was an instinct. And what's interesting is I read these um, research papers, the ones I try to read both sides of the equation and the ones that are like pro sleep training or whatever, um, they literally talk about how they need to figure out a way to overcome the parental resistance because parents don't want to do this. They don't want to. And so they're actively trying to hack the psychology of mothers to get them to overcome listening to their instinct. So we need to be aware that like, this is what we're up against. Just like in marketing, there are people studying the human brain and they're studying how to influence you to not listen to yourself, which is why it's so important we have that message over and over again. You must listen to yourself. You have an instinct. The reason you want to go into action when your baby cries is because that's how nature designed you and designed that is the mother's love. And every baby needs that mother's instinct and intuition, that love. Um, and I think prepare that you will get a lot of noise because let's be real, we live in a system that wants to maximize the amount of people in the workforce, paying their taxes, that the I, you know, separating mothers from babies pretty early makes a woman far easier to go out into the to encourage out into the workplace and this and that. That, you know, no one can really monetize the maternal instinct. Um, and this is just to say that there's going to be a lot of noise and pressure of trying to get you to fit into a society that is not congruent with nature. And so what the world really needs is mothers listening to themselves and trusting themselves and trusting their babies to overcome or to find a way to get motherhood to kind of work within this system that is going to be applying other pressure. Um, so I think that's such an important point. So uh, you are, are, you, are you a stay-at-home mom? Do you say that you're a stay-at-home mom? So no, I work full time, but um, one of the good things that came out as a result of the pandemic is that I work from home full time. So, and I have, you know, my, my parents take care of my children <laughs> just in the other room. So um, that's been really beneficial uh, for me because my son can come in at any point and then I can nurse him and then he goes back out to play. Um, so that's, yeah, so I do work full time, but I nurse on demand whenever he wants. And on days when, you know, my dad is has them out at the park or things like that, I pump and just put some milk in the fridge so or the freezer. Um, 
so yeah, so I do work, but it, it's it's been a good situation for me to be able to still have that continuity. Uh, with my daughter, I was working full-time outside of the house, but I would pump often. And I would say, that's one thing I did want to say, you know, like, I feel like mothers just don't have enough support. Like, I'm sure more mothers would want to breastfeed or be more persistent. It would not give up when their child doesn't latch at a week old. Um I've had so many friends who would say, oh, I wanted to breastfeed, but, you know, I just didn't make enough milk or, um, you know, for whatever reason. And I'm just like, you know, I try to respect everyone's decision, but I just, I know like if they had more support, then maybe the outcome would have been different. And I, I feel very fortunate. I've had a lot of support. Um, you know, I remember when my dad, I was uh, switching my daughter over from breast milk to, you know, regular milk. And uh, he was like, well, we want the good stuff. <laughs> we don't want that so um but yes yeah, so I I just have I've had a lot of support my husband is very supportive of breastfeeding and so I do feel like I'm in somewhat of a unique situation that I've just I think the environment has fostered that for me um and even like even my current work situation you know I work full-time but I can still breastfeed on demand I mean I feel like I'm very fortunate Mm, that's that's incredible so basically your parents um, and your husband all are aligned with your parenting values as well. So you have this, yeah, yeah, would you say? Well, something? I would say definitely my dad, my husband and I, you know, so, you know, that first week home with my son where he, you know, his day and night was switched. <laughs> so like he'd sleep at 7 a.m., but then be up from midnight to 7 a.m. Like, and it was really challenging because my son was up all night and then my daughter would wake up at 7 a.m. And it's like, well, we've been up all night. <laughs> So, so um, those first few weeks were tough. And I remember my husband saying, you know, let's put my newborn in the crib and just let him cry. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, that was a big disagreement. Cause I'm like, first of all, he does not understand what you're trying to do. He's a week old. He has no clue what you're trying to do. Um, so yeah, we haven't always been on the same page. I mean, looking back on it, my husband and I, we laugh about this now. Cause he's like, yeah, what was I thinking? I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> but that was not, yeah. So um I, I think for the most part, yes, but I, I also think we were just so sleep deprived. I mean, you can imagine you're up all night with a newborn and then you're, when the newborn goes to sleep, your toddler wakes up. It's, I don't think he was thinking clearly. So, yeah. 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 And they say like sleep deprivation, um, you know, is, is like worse than being drunk for your judgment. So it's a really tough situation to navigate for sure. Um, did you... Did you co-sleep with your children? I did, and I still do. They both sleep in the bed with me now. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, my son is still nursing several times throughout the night. I mean, it may only be for a few minutes here or there, but he's still doing it. And my daughter, I mean, I just, I don't know, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Again, I'm just doing what seems natural to me. So, yeah, they're still both in the bed with me. Um, you know, my daughter has now expressed interest in, like, having her own room. And so that we will be moving to that. But, yeah, for now, we we just, we just been doing that. Yeah, I love it. Honestly, like my favorite part of parenthood. It's like finally everyone's just peaceful and relaxed and we can all bond, you know, while sleeping. Um, right. Yeah, I think it's just this, why wouldn't you flood yourself with oxytocin? Like it's, it's um yeah, it's so beautiful. How, there was so yeah. night and day. And honestly, like I said, my son was sleeping, was up all night. I mean, 
And I honestly, I was getting worried because you can imagine if you're so sleep deprived and you're trying to hold a baby, I'm like, we're going, like, I felt like we were going to drop him. And so again, I just followed my instinct and I said, I'm going to put him on the bed next to me. And that night <laughs> we got sleep, we slept. So I'm like, okay, why was I fighting against this? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I was trying to transition my daughter in and out of this bassinet next to the bed. And I woke up one time with her slipping out of my arms. I was sitting up breastfeeding her and I thought, this is dangerous. So then I looked at um, bed sharing and found out there was like this safe way to do it. So that night we set it all up and I couldn't, I was a new person the next day. We all got so much more sleep. She slept so much better. Like it was just like, oh my gosh, we were just fighting against this. It was so hard. So I immediately, my second one was like straight away. There was none of that fighting the process it was just like right next to me and she went to sleep and it was great <laughs> so yeah it's um it, it's it's a really it's, it's I think it's exactly what nature wanted to happen um and I think a lot of the reason a lot of people are so tired is that they're fighting this because again of the advice um that's out there you said something and I, I oh I love the setup with your parents um, something that like a goal of mine is to be able to hopefully, you know, live a long life and be around to be able to offer that to my children that, you know, um, I can be here helping out and therefore they have more options and more availability, more flexibility with their time. Because from what I understand, that was from on an anthropological level, that was how humans were. Like a mother didn't actually do all this mothering all the time. She had, um, older children in the village she had her mom and her parents she had just other women other people around um and so people could just hold and take turns it was a kind of this organic you know passing around of the baby but because everyone had the same parenting philosophies and values it really worked because you know you weren't going to pass it to someone who would put it down and leave it crying everyone you know could, there were lots of people that could breastfeed and whatever. And I think we weren't designed to do it all on our own. It's a big reason why a lot of mums are burning out. So I think it is invaluable to have that support network of people you can trust that you can pass the baby to and do other things. Because I think ultimately it is probably healthiest for women to have times when they're just doing something for themselves, um, for their mental health. But because of the nuclear family model now, um, the next best situation is well just the mum does it all <laughs> but it's just it's the mum that's getting sacrificed to that so I do love that setup that you've got there and I, I hope to be around to offer that to my children should they want that one day um, so what would you say has been like the greatest challenges of of your motherhood journey Honestly, I think it's what you just said, you know, um, you know, I knew when I became a mom, I was going to, you know, do the best job I could, I was going to put my all into it. But um, I think sometimes it's, you know, I, I, I'm last, <laughs> I'm the totem pole of, of everything that needs to get done. I'm last, I was reading something recently, and it was about like the mental load of motherhood. You know, there's so much we do physically, right? We, we're, we're doing the baths, and we're cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. And everybody can see that, you know, I think that's, you know, people recognize that, but I don't know if we always recognize the mental load of it all, you know, like in my head, I have constant running lists, you know, my daughter's in activities and doctor's appointments and signing up for school. And so I do all of that too. Um, and I feel like that 
is that takes a toll. Um, so something that I personally have not been great about is taking time for myself, carving out time for myself, putting uh, mom guilt in its place. <laughs> mom guilt is real. Um, uh, and I'm still learning how to manage that. You know, like I went to the store the other day and I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, and I didn't have the kids with me. And I said, oh, I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to walk around. But immediately mom guilt reared its ugly head and said, well, what if your dad wants to do something? What if he's over there and struggling with the kids? You know, you need to go. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, my dad is like, please take some time for yourself. <laughs> but so, um, yeah, I'm trying to get better at that. Um, I think you know, honestly, I do think it's a little hard to do that when your kids are very young, but you know, I have a four-year-old now, she's four going on 24. Uh, so she, you know, I, she doesn't need me quite as much, um, although she needs me in other ways. Um, and my son now, he's walking, he's saying more, so he's not needing me quite as much, but you know, I, I think like if I, if they were like six months, I would not, <laughs> you know, feel like this great need to take so much time for myself, even though I probably should. But um, yeah, I think that's my biggest struggle right now. Just finding that time, being intentional about that time. Um, there's definitely been times when I've had opportunities to have some alone time and I've opted not to. And I'm like, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. You know, you need to recharge as well because so much is demanded of me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, all really good points. Um, something that really helped me was finding out that a baby crying in someone else's arms versus crying alone is a very different experience that holding a baby actually dampens their cortisol response. Um, so even though they're crying, they're not, it's not like this damaging flooded with stress situation. So that helped me be like, okay, even if I like to, in terms of taking time for myself, even if I give um, you know, my baby to my husband and they're crying, as long as he's holding them and trying to respond, they're they're all right. Like I don't need to solve that. Whereas with my first, I kind of just wanted to solve it all all the time. I went like 18 months without like 10 minutes to myself. It was crazy. But with the second one, um, much sooner, maybe around like six or seven months, I would uh, give her to my husband and I would go for a walk down to this beach where I used to live. I loved it. It was called Cuddy Beach. And I would call them soul sessions. And I would, it was such a big, it's a big milestone. If you're a single person or like a, a childless person, you can't quite comprehend the act of walking off without holding a baby when that's all you've done for six or seven or 18 months is quite an experience. You're sort of like, I am walking down the street <laughs> on my own. It's radical. Um, but yeah, just the act of walking down, sitting on the beach, I would just stare at the waves, go for a dip, journal, and then come back. You know, and and I, my husband was always like a phone call away, a two-minute drive away. Um, but that that was game-changing and just knowing that as long as even if she got upset, as long as he was holding her and trying, that that that, that would be not, that would be dampening the stress response. And I would come back fresh and new. And I think, um, yeah, that was something I certainly learned the second time around. But to your point about the mental load, it's so real. Um, like even, even now that they're older, I'm they're always, there's always a file open in my head of like, what are my children up to right now? Like even when they're at school, if my phone rings, I'm like, that could be the school. What if they need me? Like I, it's, it's, it's always there. And I think something we don't appreciate before we become children is 
Like you could just go to work and, you know, there's after work drinks, there's lunch, there's this. You're just, you're not really thinking about anything. There's like this absolute like mental freedom. Um, but even if you were to replicate that exact situation as a mom, you're a different person in that situation now because your head is literally thinking the whole time. What time is it? How are my children? Are they doing okay? Has anyone tried to call me? I wonder if that, you know, you're sort of stop taking the whole time. They're, they're always there, which is a beautiful thing because you're always thinking about people that you love. And also it's it's a whole different level of responsibility um, that that changes you. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot to hold that. I think that's a really important thing is, yeah, the mental load of motherhood and trying to find ways to, to put it down occasionally, but also a really good point that it's not necessarily that important in like in the early phase, in the early phase, you want to understand, no, this is not a really good time for self-care. This is a time for going all in. And, um, eventually you'll, you'll, you'll feel that they're a little more ready for you to take a little bit more and a little bit more um yeah yeah and I you know like you I've started taking walks in the morning and sometimes the kids join me and my husband will come too but on those mornings when I can walk alone it is magical <laughs> it really is and I tell my husband you know I come back and I'm a different I'm a better mom I'm a better mom after this it's something I've realized too I come back I'm lighter I'm freer I'm not you know parenting is hard you know and um I've learned so much about parenting is, is just kind of monitoring. Sorry, you might hear my kids knocking on the window out there. Monitoring um, my reaction to things, you know, like responding and self-awareness. It's so, that's so much about parenting. And I find like, you know, my child might do something that maybe I don't love. I'm able to manage it much in a much better way after I've had some of that alone time, you know? And so I'm just a better mom after that. Yes, I think the greatest life hack ever for everyone is a morning walk. A morning walk, like whenever I'm in my hardest seasons, I'm like, okay, a morning walk, and it changes your whole day. You get that morning sun on your skin, you get the good endorphins rolling, and it just sets you up. It's it, yeah, it's um, it's a brilliant thing to do. Even while pregnant, I actually found out that it in, like increases apparently your child's um, health and intelligence if you go for frequent walks while pregnant a physio told me that when I didn't really want to move in my second pregnancy to be honest. <laughs> yeah okay. the morning walks are wonderful they're just yeah life-changing yeah mm -hmm. well thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of your wisdom is there anything that I haven't asked you today on motherhood that you feel like you know um you, you haven't got a chance to say but you did want to say something I haven't asked um I can't think if there's anything that you haven't asked, but um, yeah, I think, yeah. I, you know, I was going to talk a little bit about my book. I don't know if there's time to do that, but. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something new that I'm working on. I never would have thought that I'd be doing this, but um, I'm actually writing a children's book. Um, it's my debut book and it's called Penelope and the Power of Positivity. So Penelope and the Power of Positivity. And it's all about a, um, a young girl who has like really big dreams, but she has these two friends that are just, they don't believe in her dreams. They think they're too big and too scary. And their names are fear and self-doubt. And I feel like these are, you know, we all have these two friends, fear and self-doubt. And the story's all about how she kind of, um, you know, 
makes a break from them and and to reach her goals. And I feel like it's something that I personally, I'm working through. I feel like throughout my life, throughout my career, I've had a lot of anxiety and fear and self-doubt about accomplishing things. And only now am I realizing that you don't have to live that way. You don't have to think that way. You can change your mind. Your mindset can change. And so I just thought, wouldn't this be a wonderful thing for children to have to kind of grasp? Um, would it, you know, think about all the things they could even attempt to do if they did if they weren't limited by those self-limiting beliefs. So um yeah. Oh my That's gosh. Sort of incredible. Yeah. That sounds incredible. What a life-changing message to receive so young. I mean, I think so many adults need to hear this, but imagine it would change the world if children heard this so young. Like you can dream big and then understand that's going to be outside your comfort zone. Fear and doubt are going to creep in, but hey, you can you can change your use your mind to overcome those obstacles and achieve great things. I think that's such a cool message. So, how can people learn more um, or or get the book? How can people find you? Sure. So I, my Instagram is OB underscore Bella. So that's OB underscore B-E-L-A. And I hope to have like a separate uh, Instagram and website for the book soon. The book should be available for purchase pretty much everywhere uh, within the next month or so. I can let you know, Elise, but um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. And I think you know, when I wrote the book, I didn't know that there was this whole term called growth mindset out there. I'm learning more and more about this now, but, you know, my message is, it's in alignment with this. Um, but I, yeah, I just thought this is just a message I want to get out into the world, something I'm trying to do with my own children um, as they, you know, they all have their challenges. Like my daughter's trying to learn how to tie her shoes and it's, I can't do this. And I'm like, well, you can't do that yet, <laughs> right? Like we even add that yet on there. Um, so yeah, I just thought, well, if this is something I'm thinking about, I wonder if it could help other parents, so. That's so cool. So you just naturally fell into growth mindset without knowing what it was. Is that right? That is right. I just learned this term, honestly, about a month ago. I had no idea. I just said, this is something, this is my message. This is what my book is about. And then I'm like, oh, wow, there's this whole thing out there about this. And it's it's wonderful. Because you've obviously achieved really big dreams. Like OBGYN, do you have to become a medical doctor first and then specialize is that right? Is that what you've done? I mean, that's right. huge. It was huge for me. This was a dream I had when I was 10. I was like, oh, I'm going to become a doctor. I didn't know that all of, I was going to have to go through all of this. But yeah, four years of medical school, four years of OBGYN residency. It, you know, it's taken me a long time to get through this. And I realized over my life that although I've had this fear and self-doubt sort of in the background, I've never let it stop me. But I did it with like a lot of angst, you know, like it doesn't have to be that way you can decide that I'm going to do this and maybe the fear and self-doubt are not going to leave you. I mean, I still have my self-limiting beliefs, even with writing the book. I'm like, who do I think I am? I'm writing a book. I'm not even, a, you know, but I'm like, yeah, you're going to do it despite this fear. Like you can stay there, but you're not going to drive. You're not going to make the decisions anymore. Yeah. I think you're exactly the right person to write a book because you've got the lived experience of achieving big dreams, um, which means you've had to have You've had to wage out the war with your own mind. Like any anyone that's achieved anything has been jumping outside their comfort zone and has had to has had to work through all the resistance that comes up. So, yeah, that's really cool. What's it called? But uh, what's it called? Sorry again. Penelope. Sure, it's called, uh, Penelope and the Power of Positivity. So lots of peace. Yeah. 
I love that. That makes it kind of fun for children. Penelope and the power of positivity. So cool. So that's going to be available online, all the different kind of book outlets like Booktopia and I'm not aligned with any. That's just the one that's coming up in my head right now. Um, awesome. And we've got the Instagram handle. So I'll pop that in the caption of the podcast. Um, fabulous. And that's where people can get in contact with you if they want to learn more, like they can't find the book or something. They can go to your Instagram. And, and yeah, if you go to Instagram, you'll see the book cover there. It's already, you know, there and it will be available soon. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I, if it encourages other parents, I mean, I think obviously the book is for kids, but like I said, the message is for everyone. And I hope that other parents will find it valuable. I hope kids will love the pictures. Um, and, you know, if we can start children thinking along this path when they're young, just imagine what they can accomplish. Just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. I love someone that has walked the path, um, you know, letting others know how they can do it too. So yeah, really inspiring stuff. Thank you so much. Honestly, um, it's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed your story. Thanks for being so vulnerable and open with your NICU journey and this and that um, so that other parents can, you know, take the wisdom of you know, expressing some, getting some colostrum already expressed and ready to go um, because, yeah, that stuff is absolute gold, uh, and, you know, and everything else that you've shared along the way and also just the journey of um, persistence with your child not latching that, you know, it doesn't mean your journey's over, um, you know, it could be happening a few weeks down the track, you know, keep trying. Um, so that's awesome. And also the power of, like, listening to your internal compass like feeling what you want to do and then trusting that um yeah really awesome so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for having me it was really nice chatting with you my absolute pleasure